Good morning, church family. Uh, happy Father's Day. And uh, what a great thing. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for my father. Not a perfect dad, but a good father. And, uh, and that's the most significant role. If you've been called to be a father, the influence that we have over our children is, is more significant than anybody else. And God uses fathers to shape children shape people to come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and uh, I think of spiritual fathers I think of Mike Sylvester who's been a who when I became a Christian at the University of Southern California he uh, he mentored me taught me how to study the Bible taught me what the gospel was and how it applies to my failures my successes my identity so I just love for us to really think about who has been the Paul's or spiritual fathers in our lives who have we been to Timothy to I mean, think about that person, okay? And uh, Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Spiritual fathers, we, could, we have an opportunity to be a spiritual father, spiritual mother to somebody. Just find someone who knows a little bit less than you and teach them the word, all right? So anyone could do that. We could do this. And so today, we're going to see Peter, how he acts as a spiritual father. As we talked about last week, we are the body of Christ and there's people called, like apostles, like Peter, to guard the family or the flock against false teachers. This is one of the pivotal roles of being a father. A father's role, one of the roles is to protect. And they're right here. We're going to see Peter's heart as a true spiritual father. So, and he's going to highlight the word of God, the Bible today for us. And so this topic, the sermon topic, is about God's word, the Bible God's holy Bible. Okay, so let's pray and let's, let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, I thank you for opportunity to preach your word. Father, I pray for the fathers in here, spiritual and natural fathers in here, that they will be men of conviction who have their convictions birthed and grounded in your truth, the word of God. I pray for these men to be protectors of their families and their church family, providers for their families and their church family, pastors of the church and their church family. Thank you, Father. I pray these men will love well, just like you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for Peter, how he has the Father's heart in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I thank you that your word is sufficient. Your Bible is inerrant without error. Your Bible is a, is a, has authority of its own. And I thank you that the sum of your words is truth. More valuable than gold, you say. More precious than precious silver. So I thank you, Father. Spirit of God, I pray, Lord, that we will see you more clearly in the scriptures, Lord Jesus. We'll gain more confidence in your written word, the Bible, that we know that this is your word and you do speak to us clearly through your written word, the Bible. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the topic today, truth. This is the scriptures, the Bible. God's given us this incredible gift, the Bible, to know him, to understand truth, what it is. And as a father would do, any good father for his children, he feeds his family the word. All right, this is what Peter is doing to us. He's feeding us. And what does Satan do back in the garden when we talked about how the fall happened in Genesis 3? 
We're going through the scriptures here. We're in Genesis 3 at one time. Remember how he attacked Adam and Eve? Has God said? Right from the beginning, this is Satan's strategy to poison the word, God's word, so that we would be weak, would be flailing, so that we'd be infected and he would want us to die. He tries to poison the food. For example, last week I was in Men's Central Jail and um, visiting a friend and Pastor Dave Casepeer, who's been serving there for years and years, helped me get in and, and meet the chaplains. And they got me in right there into the cell. I mean, rows and all that. And my friend was in his cell, and there's other people next door. And he was like, Rocky, I got something to show you. I said, what's up, man? And he brings it. I got this. I got a Bible, right? I said, that's wonderful. And he shows it to me. And the title right here in the front cover says, New World Translation. For some of us who know what that is, that is the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible. I said, hold on, man. Right then again, we're saying, Let's, my friend, we need to talk. We, we give a little dap, a little hug, you know, as best we could through the bars. And, but they say, look, let's talk about the scripture, sir. All right, so the Jehovah's Witness, this is how Satan works. He goes, my, this guy tells me that they're Christians too. And, and, and so anyway, they have their own version. Or Satan would tweet, has God said, right? The Mormons, my, I got great Mormon friends, wonderful people. They, have, they even added another book on top of the Bible, right? Bibles do not add or subtract. This is how Satan deals with God's people and God's truth. Has God said? By the way, why don't you add this too? So this is it. Secular world calls the Bible a book of myths, a book of traditions, Maybe some allegorical things. Maybe you could pull out some important things, but not truth. What's been hard and disheartening in times is seeing uh, uh, liberal seminaries rise up and say the word of God is no longer God's word. Or Christian universities who are flailing on this topic. I mean, I just, you know, if you go to a Christian university, know this, you have to on guard so much more. Whereas if you go to a secular uh, university or secular high school or public high school, you already know where they're coming from if they ever talk about the Bible or truth. You're already on guard. And when you go to a Christian university, you have to be on point. Is that right? Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? There's a challenge, an extra challenge, and I get that. I see that. But the Bible clearly says that you're not to add or subtract in Deuteronomy, talking about the law, the law section of the Bible. It says, do not add or subtract. In the prophets, Jeremiah said, do not take away or add from my word. In the writings, which represent the Psalms and the Proverbs in the book of Wisdoms, it says, do not add or take away. At the end, John talks about it for the New Testament, do not add or subtract or else you will be cursed. I mean, this is a very general theme, it's a clear theme throughout the scriptures. Do not add to the word of God or do not take away from the word of God. It is sufficient. And as we're going through our, our, our sermon series called Look to Christ, if you want to look to Christ and have the clearest picture, you simply look at the Bible. The Bible will give you the clearest picture of who Christ Jesus is. And I want us to take time to look at our church bulletin here. It's a beautiful thing that uh, Irene Mark put together. But look, let's look at the words here. Okay, if you have your church bulletin, or you could check, check it out behind me. It says, the church family at Evergreen SGV is about Jesus Christ 
in no unclear terms, the Lord. Our primary desire is to love Christ as the greatest treasure of our lives and to become more like him. The Bible, the Bible, right there, the Bible is absolutely central. It's central in this, in this write-up. It's central to our church. The Bible is the, the sufficient, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. And it is foundational to the life of the church. The Bible is God's means to give us the clearest picture of Christ. We minister the Bible as a family, a church family. We come alongside one another, passionately pursue Christ, and to become formed into his image. We proclaim or re-preach Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So the scriptures are absolutely foundation to the church. And I wanted to talk about what does it mean that the Bible is sufficient? All right, in a, in a nutshell, the Bible has everything that you need to have to live as a Christian. A, to become a Christian, the gospel message is clear. Your need for Christ and how Christ saves you on, the, on his work on the cross and his death and resurrection. He is Lord. And secondly, it tells you how to live as a Christian. All right, how to live as part of the body of Christ. It's all there. It's sufficient. Number two, what does it mean? It's inerrant. In a very simple way, even in a way our children can understand, without any error. Whatever it claims is absolutely true. Without error. Absolutely true. And what does it mean about the Bible's authoritative? That means it's worthy of complete trust. Whatever you read and you understand it with context and proper interpretive uh, process, you could bank on it. You could trust it because it's consistent with who God is himself. He's perfect. He cannot lie. It's authoritative, okay? The Bible has authority of its own, really. And so today, I just want to, just a little bit of an introduction right there. We're going to be at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I'll be preaching at the NASB, New American Standard Bible, okay? Chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It's in the back. It's a little bit of a context. If you went to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you went too far, just back it up a little bit. Peter, a spiritual father, is writing to the the churches in Asia Minor, the Christians in Asia Minor. Where's Asia Minor? That's Turkey, modern-day Turkey. What is the issue? False teachers. He's acting as a spiritual father by protecting the Christians from false teachers who deny the Scriptures all right, who are wanting to destroy the Christian's trust in Christ. There's a lot of persecution going on, saying he's not worth it. All right, this is a massive thing that Peter is undergoing. Just like Satan, these false teachers work to, to uh, undermine the scriptures. Peter is now potentially in his 70s. He's an older man. He's in his 70s, and he's locked up in a Roman prison, going to be martyred pretty soon. Perhaps Peter senses that his end is near, and what would Peter focus on? What would you focus in on if you're towards the end of your life and you knew it? What would you emphasize to your children, to your friends, those most dearest to you? What would you emphasize? This is where Peter goes. In essence, he emphasizes his last words is Christ And I'm going to give you greater confidence in Christ, Peter speaking, because my eyewitness experience, but more importantly, the written word. Okay, this is what the scriptures are about this morning. So that's a little bit of context. So let's rise. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I am out of the NASB. Just to verse 21 here this morning. 
Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father speaks about the Son. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But when, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But man moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to preach on 2 Peter chapter 1. Thank you that you moved Peter by the power of your Holy Spirit to pen this. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. In the very next verse, if I were to go on, Peter says there will be false teachers among you. All right, among you. Imagine Peter saying that, among you, Evergreen SGV, there will be false teachers among you. So Peter's saying, be on guard. That's the very next verse. There will be false teachers among you. And in verse 16, Peter's attacking the methods of the false teachers. What is the method of the false teachers? Cleverly devised tales. Cleverly devised myths. Crafty, concocted, concocted schemes. Just like Satan, the crafty one in the, in the garden. He's dismantling this whole uh, technique by the false teachers. Very confusing, very, very uh, uh, not, nothing grounded in the scriptures. And he, he, he's going to go to a defining moment in his life. And I think about, okay, what can we all relate to? All right, Peter had a defining moment, an eyewitness account that he actually observed with his own eyes while he was alive on earth. And, I, and I, you know, perhaps for our, our older brothers and sisters, perhaps they could remember when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Right? Perhaps. I mean, it's a riveting scene when you go visit the, the memorial. But I bet many of us uh, could remember 9-11, I mean, that, that may be that defining moment as a country where just, gosh, I gripped us. I remember I was driving into the office at the University of Southern California. I was a young coach, and I turn, we turned on the TV, and like, what in the world just happened? We had this kind of important game. Every game still felt important, but right then, there was no game planning. There was no studying. It was like we're all, all of us coaches were staring at the television. Like, we're not even worried about any games at that point. I mean, it's a horrifying thing that changed a lot of things. And right here, Peter shares about his eyewitness testimony in, in verses 16, 17, and 18. And then, so there, there's a whole thing that happens here and where he talks about in, in 16. We're not going to tell you about any cleverly devised schemes or tales. I'm going to speak to you exactly what I saw. And keep in mind, Peter is attacking these false teachers. 
He's trying to say, hey, look, build confidence. You could trust in Christ. You could trust in Christ. I saw things. And it says right here in verse 16, it says, but, there's a big transition, cleverly devised schemes, but how we deal, how true teachers deal with this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, eyewitnesses of Jesus' splendor. What is Peter talking about? Is he talking about in the general sense he saw God's glory for three years? You know, he traveled with Jesus for three years as his, one of the 12 disciples. No, Peter's talking about a very specific event. And it happened, we think, many uh, scholars believe, on this mountainside. So when I went to Israel, we went to the northern part of Israel called Golan Heights and got to pray over Damascus and prayed salvation comes to the surrounding nations of Israel. But the, our, our, our guide, our teacher, told us, hey, look over there. That's Mount Hermon, right? The original Mount Hermon, okay? We got our own Mount Hermon in Santa Cruz, but Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is, is a lot of times majestic with white snow, and that's the source of water, in, in a sense, a source of living water, physical living water for Israel. Israel is like a desert. They need Mount Hermon. All the snow that gets captured there, it melts and it becomes streams. And, and then this is probably where Jesus' transfiguration took place, on Mount Hermon. When it says in the Bible, you can look, look it up more on Matthew 17, that's where, and in the other synoptic gospels. But what is this transfiguration? This is when Jesus, in essence, kind of pulls back his skin, okay? And you see more of his divine glory. If you could imagine that, all right? Jesus is awesome already, but a lot of that was veiled in, in, in his divine nature because he had skin on. It's as he started glowing like the sun all of a sudden. And not only that, Peter, James, and John, who went with them, saw Moses and Elijah somehow appear. And they're talking to Jesus. And not only that, as Peter's about suggesting some things, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All right? So, I mean, they, Peter witnesses. This is what Peter's talking about when he saw, we saw his majestic glory. Uh, basically, a preview of Jesus' coming glory in Revelation 19, when we talked about how he's coming back riding the white horse in, in the return of Christ. And he goes, this is my own personal experience. This has way more clout, way more credibility than these cleverly devised schemes, cle cleverly devised tales that don't even make sense. And the, the, these false teachers, all they wanted to do is create doubt in the minds of the people as they're facing persecution. Is Jesus actually returning? Is this going to be worth it? Perhaps as you're sitting there right now, I don't know level, level of persecution you may be facing at school, work, relationships, or maybe it's keeping you from promotions at work. You're giving up stuff, perhaps. Maybe the enemy is whispering in your mind and your heart, is Jesus really coming back? Is he really worth it? Peter is talking to Christians right now going undergoing immense persecution, life and death, imprisonment. This is what Peter is battling here. And then he says, this, I'm, what I, I experienced this. I know exactly what I'm talking about. These false teachers have no idea what they're talking about. So that's what Peter's experience. But then he moves, transitions pretty quickly here but you have something more reliable even than my own experience. And this is speaking from someone who's seen Jesus light up like the sun. All right? And he heard the Father's voice. 
And he, right here, verse, he says this, you have the written word. And in verse 19, we're transitioning here to something that we all have. We don't have that opportunity to see Jesus light up like the sun, like Peter and James and John did. All right? But we have the written word preserved for us right now. Here it is. You want to hear from God? There it is. And Peter is saying the Bible is the word of God because it is even more sure. Even more sure than what, Peter? Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. All right, more sure than what? More sure than personal experience. More sure than Peter's testimony. More sure than human wisdom or human knowledge. More sure than prophet, a philosophy of men. More sure than culture or religious tradition. We've been doing this a long time. No, more sure than even that. More sure than even any personal visions or dreams. More sure than your feelings. I feel this way. Greater than even our own feelings. More sure than any guru or some false teacher. In essence, Peter is also saying. We have the prophetic word. In context, Peter's talking about the Old Testament, the scriptures. Because they didn't have the New Testament yet. But now that we have the Old and the New, he's talking about the written word, the scriptures, the Bible. The Bible is more sure than any of those things. If you read the word and you understand it, it's God speaking to you in no unclear terms. And he goes, this is more sure. He says, you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention. Be engrossed in it. Be saturated with God's word. Are you in it, church family, every single day? Is this the only word that you may get the whole week? Is when you hear the preacher. Peter saying to pay, it'll do well to pay attention. You are in it, constantly thinking about it. You're a man, a woman, a child, saturated by God's word. As, as Uncle Garrett talked about, it's a lamp. Your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. It's like a flashlight in a dark, dark, dark world. You need that flashlight to navigate through life. You need that flashlight to have in light, be in light to understand what's going on with a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. This is what we're talking about. How do you interpret what is going on around you? You need the scriptures. It's like that mag flashlight that gives you great vision. However, it's also, Peter's also saying that's just a flashlight compared to Garrett when he goes camping, when the sun comes up, he doesn't need any flashlights until Jesus comes back and boom, it's daytime all of a sudden. You don't need that light anymore. Jesus is the light. There's a, there's a, there's a picture there happening. This morning star talked about 19 literally means the light bringer, talking about Christ. Jesus is the sun. And so the Bible is the word of God because it is more sure. Peter's saying, this is the scriptures. You could trust this even more than my own testimony, as he's telling the people. But also the Bible is the word of God because it is not from man. Not from man. Here, let's take a look at verse 20 and, and first half of 21. But know this, first of all. Know this, first of all. All right? That no prophecy of Scripture, the written word, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever, was ever made by an act of human will. This is not from God. It, I mean, God from man. If the Scriptures were from man, yeah, how good is that? 
This is not from man, the Bible saying. The Bible is the word of God because it is not from man. Let's talk about, first of all, the origin of this thing is not from man. Now keep in mind, like I said, the context, false teachers. False teachers. And I, I want to give you a picture here. If you've got your scriptures, or actually I think it's going to be behind me, Jeremiah 23 here. I'm going to read Jeremiah 23, 30 to 32. This is how God describes what a false teacher is like. All right, this is how God describes what a false teacher is like. Verse, Jeremiah 23, verse 30. I'm going to go to 32. Therefore, God's speaking here, using Jeremiah like a pen. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. 31. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongue and declare, the Lord declares, God told me so. God said so. False teachers speak like this. Verse 32. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord. And related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I, I did not send them or command them, nor did they furnish this people the slightest benefit. They're no use, declares the Lord. I mean, verse 31 says, the Lord declares. All right, the, people, the false teacher says, this is God speaking to you. I'm speaking... God is speaking through me and I'm talking to you. This is how false teachers, false prophets are described by God himself. Peter is acting as a good spiritual father saying, hey, look, be careful. Be careful who you listen to. You have the written word more sure. Pay attention to the scriptures. Pay attention to the written word. So that if anyone claims these things, no, that's not how God sounds. That's not who God is. Clearly, we need to know what the Scripture is saying. Let's go to the next point. The Bible is the Word of God because it is more sure. It is not for man. And it is God-breathed here. Let's read the end of verse 21 here. Second Peter. We're back to Second Peter. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but, contrast, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16, I think it was read earlier, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture, the Bible is God-breathed or inspired. You know, when, I, when we're living in Seattle, um, I don't know, 40 degrees was normal, 45 degrees normal. You just take a breath and you can see it, right? Some, every once in a while you can see that here, right? And so that's like God breathing his word. You can see his thoughts written on the pages. And how did God actually do this? How did God actually write the scriptures? Did he just write it down himself? All right, 21, verse 21 says, but men moved. Okay, there's, there's some kind of cooperation. Men, humans, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. How does this work, Rocky? I mean, there's some kind of balance there of, of man's efforts, man's uh, uh, authorship with God's power. 
but not equal in partnership, I may add. How does this work? I mean, um, recently, I just want to give you maybe this, hopefully this is a helpful illustration. I uh, started, you know, I used to do my sermons on like uh, my Surface. I just bring my computer and kind of use that. You know, it's kind of like an iPad. But I got, I don't know, some friends of mine got me into some fountain pens. All right, so I'm going to pull this out here. Fountain pens. All right. So here's a fountain pen. There is a fountain. This pen was used to help write my notes. I'll journal in it and, and things like that. And a fountain pen. And as I'm studying, I mean, there's this world is becoming like a Pandora's box. I mean, I thought I'd just get one pen. Now I got two pens. You know what I mean? I had one bottle of ink. Now I got three bottles of ink. That's how it works, right? I mean, in other worlds that you guys know. But these fountain pens, they're not all the same. They're for makers. I mean, from Japan, Germany, England, Taiwan. I mean, all great makers. Different shapes, all right? Some are longer, some are girthier, some are skinnier. They're weighted differently. I'm learning these new kinds. How does it feel in your hand, man? Does it feel good? Yeah, I think, right? So it's like there's a very nuanced thing. I'm learning about all this. Some of it's made out of metal. Some of it's made out of plastic, wood, some kind of synthetic thing that feels like wood, but it's not. I'm learning about all this stuff. The nibs, what is the nib? That's the tip. All right, the nib, a lot of them are made out of metal. The really expensive ones are have, made out of gold. Right, I mean, all right, so you write on it. And so, and there's even different type of inks, like we said colors, black, different types of blue, all kinds, you know, red, all that stuff. And then there's even archival ink. What is that? Because I said, you know what, man? I was at the pen shop. Because I want a journal. I want, my thoughts are so important. I don't want it to fade. I want to save it for my kids. Well, you need archival ink. Because <laughs> the other stuff might fade after 50 years or something, you know? So <laughs> my words mean anything in 50 years. That's great. But so archival ink, there's all that stuff. So in some sense... That's perhaps how God used men, like Peter. Like Peter. These men of, who wrote the scriptures were different. They had different personalities, right? Different style, different background, different knowledge, different educational levels. Some were formally educated. Some were just educated on the streets, all right? Some were physicians. Some were farmers. Some were Pharisee of Pharisees to, fish, to simple fishermen, Right? You got all kinds. It's some of the actual royalty kings to people who built the palaces in the temple. I mean, these are builders and built walls and things like that. God used these men to, to produce the Bible. And so it's still God's ideas, but infused in this is Peter's personality. Peter's writing style if you, and Peter's background and education but still God's word. Now, what is this that we're talking? We're talking about the Bible. What is the Bible? This looks like it's one book, right? A lot of pages. But really, this is a compilation of God's word. Complete, though. Complete. 66 books make up this Bible here. 66 books. Written by 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, mostly Hebrew, Old Testament, and mostly Greek in the New Testament. Three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, written over a 1,500-year period. It took 1,500 years for God to use different men and it has one general theme. That's a miracle in itself. Incredible how the Scripture complements itself. And this one theme 
which has different nar- uh, genres. There's narratives, like story format. There's poetry with a psalm. There's wisdom with the Proverbs. There's prophecy like Isaiah, Jeremiah. There's history of the history of Israel, even history of the early church. There's the Gospels, all right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us about the life of Christ. There are the epistles, letters, like this one that we're studying today. There's the apocalypse, which is the end times and revelation. All that, 66 books. This is the Bible. And it has one general theme. And this, me understanding this absolutely changed my life. Changed me, I'm, I'm telling you. And that one general theme, it's about Christ. This, is, this book is about Christ. And so I'm moving on to the next point. The Bible is the word of God because it is more sure, because it's not from men. It is God-breathed. And number four, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. Going back to Mount Hermon. Let's go back to Mount Hermon now. Israel's Mount Hermon. Let's go back there. Pretend we're like watching this as satellites, like there's something glowing all of a sudden showing up on, on the satellite. And there's Jesus. You can see Jesus. You see Peter, James, and John, the three inner circle of his disciples. And all of a sudden, there's these two figures that show up. Bible says in Matthew, uh, Matthew 17 is Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, I don't know if they're glowing, I'm not sure, but they showed up. Now this is an incredible thing because this is, think about two biblical characters. Think about like, like Avengers or something. Somebody died in past episodes, they show up like, what? How does that work, right? This is like two biblical figures that died that all of a sudden show up, Moses and Elijah. What does that mean? Why did God have Moses and Elijah show up in that moment? And, then, and, and I think in Mark, it says that they're speaking. They, they started talking to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Significant. Why, what are they talking about? I believe that they're affirming Christ, meaning Elijah and Moses. Moses represents the law. All right? The law. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the law. The prophets, Elijah represents the prophets. In essence, that is a summation of what the Old Testament is. So you say, in essence, the Old Testament is endorsing, affirming, yes, this is the one that, that's been talked about. This is the one that's been pointed towards, Jesus. And then that's Moses and Elijah showing up on the transfiguration, at Mount Transfiguration. They're affirming that Jesus is the one. Let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24. Let's see what Jesus has to say about Luke 24. This is uh, after the resurrection on the Emmaus road before he uh, ascends back into heaven. Just like Jesus, all right, uh, Peter wants to affirm the word. I believe Jesus is affirming the word right here. Luke 24, 27. All right. Then beginning with Moses, there it is again, Moses represents the law. And with all the prophets, or Elijah, who represents all the prophets, Jesus is he. He explained to them the thing concerning himself in the scriptures. Let's go to verse 44. Jump ahead here. Now he said to them, he appears again. Jesus appears to other disciples or other followers. Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, boom, to understand the scriptures. Jesus is saying this, that 
how you interpret in a general sense is that the scriptures are about me. I'm going to give you a little bit of testimony. God, I told you it changed my life, right? I mean, in 2010, many of you guys know this, God called Sharla, my children and I, we have three at the time, and, and we gained one up there, but <laughs> to Seattle. And for many, that seemed like a joyous thing. That's awesome, you're coaching in the NFL. I don't know, that wasn't my dream. My dream was coaching and playing at the University of Southern California. That was the greatest job in the world up until this point here. And I'm in Seattle. I love Southern California. I never left the San Gabriel Valley, basically. I love this area. I love this church family. I have great friends, great fellowship. I loved it here. But God was really working on me, humbling me during that time where I'm in a new place, which I grew to love, new church, which I grew to adore and love, but I didn't know anybody. I had deep fellowship here. It's like, man, I don't have anybody. My work, I didn't like. I was like, I thought I was on the top of the hill at USC, and I was at the bottom all of a sudden at the, in the sea. I was like, what is this humbling? God was working on my pride. All right, God is working on my pride. And as if God was, like, I'm, I'm on my Emmaus road where Jesus shows up, so to speak, and, and he, through those tr- circumstances, drives me into the word for a different purpose. Because before that, I don't know how it is for every single person in this room. I used to look at the scriptures. I think I was a Christian, too, at that time, back when I lived here. I looked at the scriptures to see how can I be a better husband, right? That's important. Amen. Today's Father's Day. I want to be a good father. How can I be a, a, a good father, a good husband? How can I be a better football coach? How can I be a better leader? What principles can I extract from the scriptures to enhance those parts of my life? And Gosh, in, in a sense, God, how can you enhance my different kingdoms that I'm building right now? my family life, my work life, my, my, my prominence with culture and society. Think about that now. That's kind of dangerous thought because Jesus said after he fed the 4,000 or 5,000, the only reason why you follow me is because you want the food. You don't really want me. You want the food. The only reason why you read the scriptures is you want the principles and the wisdom in there to how to live a wise and practical life. You want to be effective. Amen. We all want that. So I'm like, I'm like, at that point, I'm like, I'm not at a place I want to be at. I don't like it. Fellowship wasn't there yet. God establishes it soon, you know, in a mighty way. But I'm looking to the scriptures. I'm not going to Starbucks and, hey, let's get together, my friend. I'm like, look, at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning at the office, and I'm looking at the words like, Jesus, I need to know you more. Luke 24. I need to see you clearly, more clearly in the scriptures. I'm pursuing you now as I read your word. I need to see you, Jesus, more clearly so that I can make sense of what's going on. I want to believe in you more. I think I believe in you. I, pr- I, I, I remember I got baptized. I remember I gave a confession of you in the locker room one time, but I want to know you more. That's what happened. I need you, Christ Jesus. And I, as soon as I realized that, I'll, it, it just set me on from a whole different trajectory. Sure, the wisdom is there. Of course, this is like incredible truth. Even uh, secular books will quote, like, 
uh, quote scriptural things, hey, this is why we pull up. They have no interest in presenting Christ. It's about how do you be a better leader, be better CEO, those sort of things, those sort of books that I've read. Even the secular world will recognize, yeah, man, there's some truth in there. But if you're reading the scriptures for that alone, you might be missing it. I hope and pray Jesus doesn't say to any of us in this room, you only wanted me for the food. I don't know you. You just wanted the food. You just want to get fed. You only wanted me for the wisdom. You only wanted me to, uh, for whatever. You just want, that's why you're hanging out with me because of those things. You didn't really want me. So that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Going up to Seattle in 2010, I was like, man, the scriptures, scriptures, I love your law. Oh, how I love your law, the Bible says. It is the meditation of my, my day and night. I'm thinking about you, Christ, through the scriptures. Oh, how I love your law. I mean, doesn't that sound good? I mean, that's just like, there's, there's, there's a whole delight in that. Take time to read Psalms 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it tells you about the scriptures. So in a nutshell, I want to encapsulate the scriptures here for us. Just so as we read it, we need to read it on your own. We need to understand this on your own. Come with the mind that the scripture is about Christ. All right? In the general sense, how can I know you, Christ, Jesus, more about what I am reading? For example, if you're in the Old Testament, here's a big general uh, guideline. The Old Testament is about the anticipation of Christ. Right? He, hasn't, he hasn't come yet. It's coming, our need for him. Certain symbolism that point to him, sacrificial system, or any prophecies, or any types. All right? The angel of the Lord showed up. You know, there's certain cameo appearances by Christ in the, in the Old Testament as well. So Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ. In the New Testament, the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is about the life of Christ. This is how Christ lived. This is what he looked like when he had skin on. This is what happened to him on the cross. These are some of his teachings and sermons, the life of Christ. The epistles, or that's a fancy word, saying letters. They're, they're apostles who wrote letters to the Christians, like Peter. Peter, First and second Peter is considered an epistle or a letter. This is the explanation of Christ to understand more at a theological level why he had to come. Why he had to die, right? What it looks like to be part of his body since he is the head. The explanation of Christ. And then revelation is the glorification of Christ. This is what Christ is going to look like when he comes back on his white horse. We went through that. There's purpose for going through these things. Let's finish up here. I'm going to finish up with one scenario here, okay? And it's incredible. My whole life, the whole week is just studying Second Peter it's just getting lost in the wonders of Second Peter. And you read Second Peter and you study more about Second Peter, you find out more about Peter too, the writer. You find out what type of fountain pen God used. All right? And, and I see a lot of myself and Peter. One of my, and another defining moment for Peter was Peter's restoration on John 21. Remember Peter denied Christ three times? That almost became his identity. Like, I'm a failure. I'm not worthy. I'm not of you, Christ. And Jesus lovingly comes for him as a loving shepherd and goes, no, man, you're still my God. You genuinely love me. And do you remember what he said to him after he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep? Jesus 
tells Peter, by the way, when you get older, you're going to get your arms stretched out and you're going to die as a martyr in essence. What? Right? (laughs) He said that to Peter. You're going to be faithful to me to the end. And so Peter's writing this, so keep that in mind. See how this adds to the whole narrative of what Christ is writing here in the scriptures? Keep this in mind. This is your last letter, Peter, that you're writing. And Jesus said you're going to die a martyr, and you're locked up. Okay, I think it's time now. I'm going to die. I'm an older man now. What is the last thing you write? All right, he writes this, 2 Peter. And before his execution, tradition has it, I read a very touching thing. Clement, one of the early church fathers, wrote about this. He said that Peter had a wife, and Peter's wife was taken out to be killed before Peter. What would you do, my brothers? Your wife is going to be murdered right now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Perhaps if you denounce Christ, maybe they'll let you go, honey. Like Maybe this is going to happen, sweetheart. Maybe those thoughts might have... The enemy might have poured those thoughts into Peter's mind. Imagine that. It's one thing for you to die. Your wife, your kids, you, the, the, your people that you love the most. You know what he says to her? Remember the Lord. It's all. <clears throat> Be faithful. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. That's what, the, that's, what the, that's what it's written down. What would drive Peter to just say, hey, honey, just remember the Lord. He's worth it. Remember him. He's coming back. Remember. What would drive Peter to say that? What would drive you to say that if it was your wife or your best friend? What would you say? Remember the Lord. Peter knew the Lord intimately through experience, but he knew him scripturally, intimately. His wife, Peter's wife, knew the Lord intimately through scripture. And it's one of those things, for example, my brothers and sisters, if you heard truth about who Christ is from the preacher or someone you trust, maybe your spiritual father or spiritual mother, that's good. That's really good. However, If you look at the scriptures like you did in 2010 in Seattle for yourself and you see these things written down for yourself, that elevates and catapults you to a whole different level of conviction. Truth grounded in the scriptures when you see it for yourself takes you from one level of glory of understanding Christ to a whole other one. It isn't good enough that my mom or dad said so. It isn't good enough that my pastor said so. It isn't good enough that my favorite preacher on the internet said so. It isn't good enough that I read this out of somebody's book. You have to look at the scriptures yourself and get lost in the wonders of it yourself. The scriptures has an authority of its own. It will burn in your heart. This thing will absolutely burn in your heart. I've treasured your word in my heart, so I'm in that sin against you, the Bible says. Treasure, put these things into your heart so that in that moment, that moment when the rubber meets the road, you will be found faithful. Because you absolutely believe what the scriptures have said. Men of conviction, women of courage. This is what we're looking for as part of being the body of Christ. If you want to feed the body of Christ and be strong and be able to say, remember the Lord, you need to be absolutely saturated with God's word. So that in that moment, you say, Jesus, I absolutely trust you. I know you. 
Truth leads to conviction. Truth is found in the scriptures. We talked about, this whole sermon has been about that. The Bible is true. Conviction births strong and courageous members of the body of Christ so that you could say with your mouth and your life lived out, remember the Lord. This is what I pray for our church family, that we become men and women, children of strength and courage grounded in the truth of God's word, of who Christ is. We preach Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. What a glorious passage that you've given us. Wow! I thank you for Peter's father's heart. I thank you how you turned him from a, a fisherman into being an incredible spiritual father. I thank you, Lord, that he was able to pastor his wife in that situation. Thank you that you gave him that conviction by the power of your Holy Spirit to pastor his wife faithfully to the end. He preached you. He preached Christ at the end and said, remember the Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we will become people of conviction because we know and believe that the scriptures, the Bible, the holy, your holy word is absolutely sufficient, inerrant, and authoritative to tell us of who, who you are, Jesus. And God, I pray, Lord, that we will all love your word and we will spend time daily in your scriptures, treasuring your words into our hearts. So thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.